My name is Sarah Armstrong, and this is episode three of A Summer of Spying. In this series, I explore the evidence presented during a court case held in 2020 during the pandemic, and on which I was a juror. In this episode, we hear from the final two witnesses and look at the changes to the court in 2020. Witness three is in his late 50s and comes across as quite belligerent, still angry. He wears a blue patterned shirt and trousers, smart casual like witness two. He sits up very straight but seems relaxed. When he turns to look at counsel, his neck seems stiff as he has to turn his upper body too. His answers are clear and insistent and he maintains a lot of eye contact with the jury until his 999 call is played. He uses a screen to shield himself from the defendant's gaze. They have all had dinner after moving in a few weeks earlier and are getting coffee when there are sounds from outside. He hears glass smashing and calls 999 while running upstairs with witness two. He doesn't know who the man is that comes into the house. He tries to get his sister, witness one, to come upstairs too so they can all lock themselves in the bathroom but she stays downstairs. Witness 3 eventually realises that it is the defendant flailing and waving the knife and bat and sees him deliberately lunging towards witness 2 on the stairs and cutting him there. The defendant continues trying to hurt them with both weapons and on the landing witness 3 stands beside witness 2 as they try to disarm the defendant. Witness 3 is holding the knife hand. His phone has fallen to the floor by now. The defendant is too strong for them. It's hard to hold him back. Witness 3 shakes the knife loose and calls for Witness 1 to come and take it away, but she doesn't, so he kicks it along the landing. He says he was trying to kill us. All three men are white British and quite solidly built, but Witness 3 suggests that the defendant's strength was far greater than theirs combined. Together, the two witnesses manage to push the defendant into the bathroom, where the defendant falls, pulling Witness 2 over. As they struggle to keep him contained, The defendant hits Witness 2 on the head with a bat and bites him on the arm. Then things calm down. The police arrive. It was their home and they can't live there now. When the 999 call is played, Witness 3 hides his face, folds his legs and making half sobs shakes as if distressed. The usher passes him the tissues. The judge asks if he wants to pause and he says no, he knows it has to be played. Afterwards, his head back up, he doesn't look upset. He's argumentative with the defence counsel. Well, you might say that, but I wouldn't. And seems to enjoy the confrontation. When he is shown an image from the police body camera in which he seems to be holding the bat, he denies it and suggests that he is holding up a tie. The entire landing is empty of all possessions. It is hard to believe there was a tie lying around. The scratches on the fingertips of Witness 3 are presented as an injury sustained when he tried to grapple with the knife. The image provided to the jury was photographed by him or Witness 2 and submitted to the police later. He is cross-examined. Are you sure you were standing side by side on the landing? Yes. Was one of you in front of the other? No. What was said in the bathroom? Nothing was said. Did you hit the defendant with the bat three or four times on the head? We wouldn't do that. Did you ever hold the bat? No, we could have got our own weapons, but we're not like that. Did you have interior CCTV? Yes, but it wasn't turned on. We don't have it on when we're in the house.
The courthouse in which we sit differs in many ways from the building which was designed and opened in 1982. Forty years has taken its toll, but there have been more recent changes. The jury lounge has areas marked off with tape around the twelve soft chairs in the main area and four tables with chairs near the vending machines. There are bottles of hand sanitizer distributed around. We are the only jury to use it, as only this space is large enough to allow us room to deliberate while still being socially distanced. This means that there are jury trials in one courtroom out of six. Other courtrooms are using online meetings to move things forward. In the lounge, there is a useless kettle, which I try to boil on the first day and abandon, still unboiled, ten minutes later. The kitchen which served hot food was closed long ago. There is a cupboard with games and books, but it is locked. There is Wi-Fi, but I never manage to log on. We are allowed access to one toilet when we use the lounge, and another on the way to and from the courtroom. On the wall of the corridor where we wait, there is a montage of newspaper clips about jurors, but it is no celebration of them. It is a series of errors, cautionary tales of jurors who have searched for background information and been caught, bad jurors who have talked to witnesses or contacted defendants on Facebook. It feels a little threatening. There is a waiting area outside the door to our courtroom where juries for two courts might normally wait to be called. As the two-metre social distancing doesn't make it possible for even one jury to wait here, the chairs have all been moved aside in case we are tempted to sit down. This exposes the extreme grubbiness of the grey carpet. It looks terrible. One of the ushers bemoans the fact that no one took the opportunity to give it a good clean. We form a queue, standing on marks glued along the floor of the waiting room and up the stairwell. We become less observant of the markers as we grow to know each other and talk easily. We discuss Netflix and ask for recommendations, the most popular series being Money Heist, a series on how to get away with crime. Inside the court, the original design was for a flattened courtroom, the judge being the only elevated person to denote control and power. Looking towards the judge, the two jury benches on the right are slightly raised and the press and public benches are on the left. The clerks sit in front of the judge, facing the benches where counsel sits, defence on the left and prosecution on the right. The defendant sits in a large glass dock at the back of the court. That was the plan. Now, in 2020, everything has changed for the jury, the public and the press. The jury is spread around the public and press benches, so instead of turning to the right and taking our seats just next to the door, we must cross in front of the large glass dock and sit to the left of the judge, some closer to the witness box and some closer to the dock. There were two seats between me and the next juror, and no one in the row behind us. Plenty of room but all the carefully thought-through lines of sight from the planning of the courtroom have been disrupted and need to be thought through again. I am at the front of the press benches. The furthest jury member is at the rear of the public benches. We all have a direct line of sight to the judge, the defendant and the witnesses, but some of us only get to see the backs of the prosecution and defence counsel. The changes have complicated the entrance and exits of witnesses and the jury needs to clear the court every time this happens. Witnesses 1, 2 and 3 
or choose to have a green folding screen between themselves and the defendant, so this might be why it's more complex. It adds yet another complication to sight lines, and defence counsel temporarily moves to the jury benches on the far side of the court while screens are used. The alteration of our seats means that the large plasma screen set up for the jury to see visual evidence is now behind us, and we need to twist around to see all of those visual recordings. There is a smaller screen above the usual jury benches, but the one behind us is much clearer. What the screens display is also affected by the COVID-19 changes. The plasma screen above the jury benches shows three images on one screen, a live stream with the defendant, the judge, and a further courtroom which is being used as a press and public gallery. This must mean that in the room where the public watches, the three images they see are the defendant, the judge and us. The demands on the system are obvious. Every time counsel wants to show an image or recording on the screen for the jury, something has to be changed within the system. It isn't clear what exactly. It's just a delay as systems are switched off and on again. The difficulty seems to worsen as a result of the live streaming. The numbers of ushers and clerks varies from day to day, presumably owing to reduced hours and some people being furloughed. On Thursday, there are two clerks sitting in front of the judge's bench and one usher taking us to and from the court. On Friday, there is a single woman acting in all three roles. There are no shared binders and there are no jugs of water. When tissues are needed by the witnesses, the usher passes the box over using a plastic glove. She doesn't wear it but uses it like an oven glove so she doesn't have to keep putting it on. One of the largest complications has nothing to do with social distancing. It's the intense heat in a courtroom positioned at the centre of a labyrinthine building. The designs for new courthouses in the 1980s came to regard natural light as being an essential part of the courtroom, but Chelmsford was built before these changes. There are no windows to open when the air conditioning fails, and the large courtroom has one fan by the clerk, one fan either side of the jury, and one fan within the glass dock. And it's still sweltering even though the weather has cooled compared to a couple of weeks earlier. The judge apologises for the conditions. The defence counsel is the first to ask permission to remove his wig and gown. The judge gives up his next. The prosecution counsel somehow keeps hers on until the penultimate day. The judge keeps the sessions short and snappy, but it's still a relief to get into the moderately warm waiting area and stairs. There is air conditioning in the jury lounge, but it's not as effective as opening the windows, which is the first action of the first juror in. The ushers tell us that this is the second year in a row when the air conditioner has broken down in the summer. It was fixed after the summer, and then they froze all winter. Witness 4 isn't really a witness in the same way as the previous ones. This witness is a police officer, and his role is to help the prosecution counsel read out the transcript of the police interview held with the defendant on the day after his arrest. Prosecution counsel reads the words of the defendant, and the police officer reads the rest. It isn't a flat reading, both parties try to convey a sense of the emotions behind the words. The defendant has a verbal tick he repeats, so I went to the house and bits and bobs, I went to talk to them and bits and bobs. I wonder how he feels hearing it back from someone else is a confused statement, 
starting with an explanation that there has been a financial falling out. A payment for the work he'd done on the house had been withheld for reasons he disagreed with. Both parties had taken a legal route to try to arbitrate a resolution, but it hadn't worked. This had been going on since April and was, he felt, unfair. He'd been suffering from depression and things were difficult at home. That night, he'd gone out with his family, got drunk and turned up at the house to have it out with the witnesses. What stands out is his surprise at his actions. He has shown the CCTV with the swearing and he sounds embarrassed at the homophobic words he used. He only wanted to have it out with them, he says. They were ignoring his texts. The mediation had failed. He wanted them to face him. He wanted to make them talk to him. Their silence was a rejection. He refers to them as boys repeatedly. He doesn't remember a woman, the sister, being there at all. It also stands out that at this point he still believes that no one was injured, just damage to the property, as he mentioned in the police car. When he is shown the photos of Witness 2, he is shocked. The long cut on the forearm has heavy black stitches and gapes a little near one end. The cut on the neck is there, but looks slight. The slash inside the armpit is also heavily stitched. The defendant doesn't understand how it happened. He just wanted to talk to them. That was all. But he brought a knife. Witness 1 spoke for 72 minutes. Witness 2 spoke for 82 minutes. Witness 3 spoke for 64 minutes. Witness 4 was the longest testimony at 85 minutes. This concluded the case for the prosecution. Episode 3 of A Summer of Spying is the third of five weekly episodes which explore what happened in a court case tried in 2020 during the pandemic from the point of view of juror and author Sarah Armstrong. In the next episode we hear from the defendant and deliberations begin. If you can't wait to hear what happened or you'd like more background information on the story behind the case, check out the show notes for a link to the ebook which accompanies this podcast, published by Sandstone Press. <laughs>